Thanks for downloading the Fantasy Animation Podcast, brought to you, as always, by fantasy-animation.org. If you like listening to us discuss all things fantasy animation, you can follow the conversations and help us increase our visibility in a number of ways. To help us grow our audience, look out for Fantasy Animation posts on social media, from Facebook to Twitter. Give us a like and a share, a comment or a query, anything that gets you involved in the conversations. If you have a favourite podcast episode, tell us about it. If you want us to discuss your favourite film or TV programme, tell us about that too. Finally, if you're an ardent listener to the podcast, or even simply a newcomer to fantasy animation, feel free to give us a star rating and leave us a short review. Every little nudge and extra bit of promotion helps us to move forward and increase our reach. But for now, please do enjoy the show. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And I think this week I'm Alex Sargent. You're all, as I've said before, you'll always be my Alex but Sargent. It depends which multiverse I am accessing the podcast from. Don't give, away, don't give away the film. Um, so yes, uh, we are delighted uh, for this episode to be joined by Simran Hans, who is a film critic for The Observer, The Guardian, and a culture writer whose work has appeared in, amongst many other things, uh, BuzzFeed, Dazed, The Fader and Sight and Sound. Simran, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Um, thank you for having me. You didn't include the little bit of my intro. She also might be Gwen Stacy. That there was my go. other addition to the biography. Um, we, we all could be. We all could be. Uh, and Yeah, exactly. There's no one selected that's special necessarily. We could all be Spider-Man. Um, so on that note, we should probably introduce the film that we've alluded to for the last couple of minutes. Um, for this episode, we're going to be doing Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is a, a very recent 2018 uh, computer animated superhero movie so sort of straddles two things that I'm particularly interested in the superhero movie on the one hand uh, and equally the computer animated feature film on the other um, it's sort of a collision between Marvel uh, with Sony Pictures Animation and we've just come fresh from uh, a screening of the film so lots of things to say but before I go on with uh, my animation hat on and before Alex uh, riffs on what I assume is going to be connected to fantasy and world building and things like this uh, Simran we wanted to, to come to you first to talk to you or ask you where you're coming from in relation to the film uh, why pick this film because it was something that you uh, were very interested in when we spoke to you about which um, uh, fantasy animation we might do and yeah what what are your sort of um are you a fantasist are you an animation fan are you a bit of both where are you sort of coming from um i i wouldn't say i was an expert in either but um you know i I would describe my my taste as pretty broad and it has to be for my job um every week i see whatever is coming out so it could be whatever like crappy horror movie it's gonna be it could be um a big tentpole marvel film it could be a children's film it could be romantic comedy what it's very rarely a romantic comedy because they don't make those anymore (laughs) but um yeah whatever is coming out i have to see it and i have to evaluate it on its own terms and you know even though i wouldn't say uh I was sort of a huge animation fan specifically. I was blown away by this movie last year. It was one of the best things that I saw um, full stop. And yeah, I haven't really stopped thinking about it since. Also, 
It's the black Spider-Man. I mean, come on. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and Nicolas Cage. I, I looked at you in the movie. I said, I don't think Nicolas Cage has ever been better. And I briefly thought leaving Las Vegas. And then I thought, no, that's, no. that's still not correct. So, <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Um, my, uh, actually, it's interesting you said that you had to watch, have to watch a broad range of things for your job. Um, I just wonder, given that animation isn't necessarily a genre per se, does animation crop up in the categories that you've mentioned? Obviously, it, cu- it crops up in the Marvel movies. You just had a big tentpole film. But do you find animation appears in these little little categories that you yeah, end up watching I mean, all the time recently i saw the secret life of pets too excellent um quite enjoyed it you know thought it was pretty solid um i really liked small foot oh um, yes which came out i think last year or yeah 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 um, one of a number uh, of yeti themed films that seem to be doing the rounds i think dreamworks uh one of its upcoming movies is called uh, abominable or something so there's a, an interesting sort oh, of maybe i'm getting confused though because there's another one that's not Smallfoot and is actually not even in the Smallfoot, um, n- not even the Smallfoot universe. Multiverse. The Smallfoot <laughs> multiverse. Well, I'll yeah. set it up for you, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but that is is sort of related. Which is the one with Channing Tatum? That is and, Smallfoot. Okay. That is not, Smallfoot. Okay, it's not that one. Okay. It's, um, it's the other one about the Sasquatch. Okay, that, could be, that might be DreamWorks' new one. Yeah. Possibly. I'm trying to think what it's, what, what it's called. Is the... I mean, I'm frantically Googling small films like Smallfoot. Uh, <laughs> we are, we are in, a, in a Yeti wave at the moment, though, right? It's like five, Sasquatch ten years ago, movie. it was Truman to Capote movies that everyone went to see. Exactly. Now it's, and now Yetis are very much in. So They're I can see why we're, we're getting confused. Yetis are in. Um, Abominable, yes. The, uh, an upcoming computer animated adventure film, DreamWorks, well, but that doesn't have... That, that has Eddie Eddie I'm going like, to look it up later and you can add it in. Yeah, we'll, we'll edit that bit in and then you'll, you'll sort of... Yeah, I know which one it is. Um, so yeah, so, so I'm, welcome to Yeti Chat. Yeah. Um, uh, Fantasy <laughs> slash animation slash Yetis. Welcome to my new podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we'll, get, we'll obviously get you back for The Secret Life of Pets yeah. too. But, um, so, so animation is something that crops up across different... Um, potentially different genres, so you end up seeing a bit of animation, largely, I guess, computer animation, given where Hollywood is at the moment, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, like I, I can't think off the top of my head the last time there was a sort of straight 2D animation that, that came out. Yeah, certainly I don't think within the, within the US context. Presumably and probably um, Japan, uh, sort of that yep. that um, area of the world spends a lot of time, I think, invested in cell animation, which is which is great. But I feel like, yeah, in the Hollywood context, I think you're right. Yeah, uh, and it's it's rare that I I get to kind of review the um, the sort of Studio Ghibli movies because uh, I work with Mark Kermode and he always loves those and always picks them for film of the week. So okay, I don't get to review those. So you get left with uh, films that may or may not star Channing Tatum. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Sure. Okay. So, well, this is this that's actually my niche. yeah, well, that's your niche. Does that uh, become fatiguing, like watching all the? Because we we would argue a lot of the films that are released these days are fantasy slash animations, right? Or at least in your viewing schedule each week, I reckon a good chunk of them are going to be that. So it must get quite sort of uh, relentless to have to watch these things week in week out. I mean, in a way, yes, mm-hmm. um, because the quality varies <laughs> quite a lot, um, but also it's still one of the greatest jobs in the world sure. you know i get to go and watch movies every week and i guess that the challenge is to not become lazy as a viewer and just think mm. well this three-star movie is marginally better than the two-star film i saw three hours earlier and try to just you know take each one um on the basis of what it's trying to do that's that's what i'm that's my kind of impetus as a critic to try and understand it on its own terms and respect it on its own terms. So what struck you about this film that was sort of 
above the rest of the cut or noteworthy or as you say it, it, it numerates with you afterwards doesn't it it sort of stays there and I've found that actually watching it well it's just so visually dynamic mm-hmm. um, I haven't seen anything quite like it before just in terms of um, yeah what it's doing with the the mixing of the different styles of animation and forgive me if I get any kind of technical terms wrong I will but, Chris's job is to fix yeah. it but, um, <laughs> but the fact that it mimics um the sort of like look of a comic book with Mm -hmm. the onomatopoeic words coming up on screen with the bende dots with um the kind of paneling the way it's cut together the colors um but it also i think it's quite interesting how it combines 2d animation with 3d animation yeah without it feeling like overly jarring it feels it's there's moments where it feels quite trippy yeah sure Um, but not in a way that's alienating, but rather in a way that's kind of um, involving and pulls you in. Well, we'll talk. Hopefully, we'll get into it um, because I have lots of notes about yeah the style of the film, the fact that it is um, visually dynamic. It, it plays with different traditions. We talked a bit about uh, Ghibli. There are obviously references to anime and anime-inspired characterizations, um, references to kind of classical era of Hollywood, both in its live-action and its animated form. So noir and sort of the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes tradition. Um, but you're absolutely right that the film yeah is sort of uh, and I guess my, my only criticism of the film is that I've, every time I get to the end of it, I think I need to watch this again because I know there are, I can see out the corner of my eye there are bits bits that I've missed. Um, Alec, what, where are you coming from? So obviously animation, it's perhaps again one of these movies that has lots to say given its production and what it was doing and inventing certain kinds of animated technology. Um, as as my and our fantasist, <laughs> what, what have you got? Well, this week I've been fantasizing about... Um, Channing Tatum. Well, always. Um, but in, in this context, uh, I've been thinking about sort of the way the um, film is very, very self-conscious in its sort of rewriting and revisioning of, it, of the Spider-Man mythology, for whatever that means. And it's sort of the link between sort of graphic comics and visual storytelling and yeah. oral storytelling, which is sort of traced right back to sort of the origins of fantasy as, as a mode of storytelling. And I think I've got things to say about sort of the way that the film foregrounds the it is retelling this tale, you know, and that people tell their story over and over and over again. And this is an origin story with multiple origin stories constantly telling you it's an origin story. And the way it sort of um, uses the baggage of the previous movies to do something very interesting in terms of um, uh, gender and race. And it's sort of uh, more inclusive approach to superhero dumb so to speak so that's well that's isn't isn't the thing with mythology that mythology is works best when it's selective and there's something quite like it feels like the film is picking the best bits or it's bringing together in the way that true intertexts and true mashups do it brings together lots and lots of different things that people love um yeah visually and in terms of characterization and also the, the nature of mythology is that sort of it's uh it's it's already been told, right? It's all stuff that everyone's supposed to be aware of, and these the, the core characters and things. A, a famous fantasy theorist, John uh, Clute, talks about this this idea that has a quality of the twice told. You feel like you've already been told it, um, and therefore the pleasure isn't necessary in the telling; it's in the retelling and the way that the, the it takes the basic structure of what a superhero movie is supposed to do, and then does some interesting things with it. And 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 I think there's there's lots to say about that. Well, you know what I was going to chime in and say is that I think that idea of retelling and kind of doubling down on uh, a mythology and a universe or a multiverse that already exists. Um, I think we we have to shout out um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller Mm -hmm. for, uh, they are producers on the film. I think Lord has a co-write credit um, and their sensibility and their playfulness and the way they kind of 
make fun of not just the mythology of, of Spider-Man and, and Marvel, but also the kind of franchises around it and the commercial elements of this retelling and all these different films. I think mm. that's very funny and very witty. Yeah, they, they do that a lot in their all their work, right? They have that uncanny ability to sort of take um, an existing model seriously um, whilst also lampooning it, right? And 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 sort of uh, being true to the spirit or the or the heart of the of the drama, whilst at the same time sort of making fun of its more tried or tested. You know, whether it be the Lego Movie, constantly making fun of commercialism whilst making the Lego Movie or um, the Jump Street movies yep. or things like that. Shout out for the Cloud of the Chance with Meatballs uh, films as well. Yeah, uh, I didn't mention yeah. that because it didn't fit my theory, but oh, yeah, good point. Um, but, it, but it fits my animation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, because I, I guess one of the things, given that Spider Man is so familiar um so well told the characters are so familiar the fact that there has been goodness knows how many film franchises within the last 20 years which the film spider-verse pays uh, a bit of a debt to visually right at the start um there is that sort of sense that it seems or it seems like that the directors um and Lord and Miller are aware and very conscious of the fact that audiences might be thinking okay so there's here we go there's another one there's another spider-man movie and yet the film feels kind of fresh it seems to sidestep potential audience um well, maybe, boredom for want of a better word maybe we should um take a moment to kind of recap the plot briefly of what happens in um in spider-verse and and kind of give people a bit of context for um the, the sort of conversation that we're having because as the title suggests there are multiple spider-man so basically this this film is the retelling of the the comic book of Miles Morales, is that how you say his name? Yeah, yeah. And um, that character, I think, was created in 2011. Um, and yeah, he, I, as I've said before, he's the Black Spider Man. He's a he's a actually a Afro Latino teenager from Brooklyn, um, and he grows up and goes to a, a kind of private school that he doesn't feel entirely comfortable in. Uh, he's really into graffiti and one day while doing some graffiti tagging with his slightly dodgy uncle yeah. he gets bitten by a radioactive spider and um the spider-man kind of legend begins again and uh through a kind of crack in the space-time <coughs> continuum he ends up interacting uh with a bunch of other different versions of spider-man maybe you can run us through some of them <laughs> <laughs> um well yes i will run run you through them so we've got um uh, as you said, Miles Morales himself, uh, you've got a version, Peter B. Parker. Well, to, to the important thing to mention already is that he lives in a world where a Spider-Man already Thinks, exists, yes. right? Yes, so exactly. that's crucial. So <coughs> yeah. he's another Spider-Man, not the Spider-Man. Yeah, he's not Peter Parker. He's mm. just another Spider-Man. So he has the Spidey powers, but he also has both of his parents, for example, which Absolutely. is very different. To and has a Peter Parker as a sort of role model, both the one that he meets very briefly, who dies, um, yep. and then this sort of second Peter Parker, who is not quite the, the clean-cut hero that we It's funny, I, I, I read that they wanted to bring Tobey Maguire in, um, who is obviously in the Sam Raimi movies, um, as his kind of mentor, Peter Parker, as the original Peter Parker. But then they thought it might get too confusing, so they scrapped that. And uh, Chris Pine, I think, yeah. plays the... That's, that's interesting. Because I, I, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. I said to Chris throughout this, when we were watching it today, they seem to be doing, as much as they're sort of embracing their old mythology, they are doing a lot to try and forget that the amazing Spider-Man Garth, Andrew Garfield. All ones. the visual references are back to those. I think you're, you're, you're looking at me, Sarah, like you're about to find one. But I think <laughs> I, I think uh, 
they're all to the sort of the old ones, the Raimi movies, the you know the upside down kiss, the um, holding the was it stopping the train or holding with, with the their webs, yeah. yeah, and the importance of Mary Jane as sort of the motivating character and things. Um, so there's a certain we will acknowledge <laughs> the past, but not that one because that one didn't work and well, it was like I guess two years ago. Gwen Stacy though is yeah. Uh-huh. Um, in good both point. of those. Yeah. Um, but I've only, I haven't seen all of the Spider-Man movies. I've seen all the Tobey Maguire ones. Uh-huh. I've seen the first, The Amazing Spider-Man, but I don't think I've seen the second one. And I haven't seen any of the ones with Tom Hollander. Ah, uh, okay. Um, but I have seen, obviously, his appearances as Spider-Man in The Avengers. In 50 yeah. other movies. Well, it's interesting that I was thinking that the re- about reference points and this thing about it being told and retold and, and the film trying to sidestep and playing with this idea of uh, tradition and origins and all that sort of stuff. Um, the film, I suppose, is in conversation a little bit with the Tom Holland movies simply because of this high school setting. I feel like the film sets that up um, and explores that in a little bit more in a little bit more detail. But what I like, the way you described the plot of the movie up until the point where he gets bitten by the radioactive spider could be any of the Spider-Man origin stories. Um, but what I like in that first 20 minutes, say, up until the point where he gets bitten by the spider, actually it culminating in the bit, he gets bitten by the spider and you think there's going to be this monumental moment where the poison or whatever it is is rattling through and he, the film just cuts and he just swats the, the spider away and the film just isn't interested in that. And I thought that was a really interesting moment that kind of encapsulates the first... 20 minutes where it's trying to set up familiar moments but at the same time and it starts with the logo like it starts with the fact that the logo glitches and warps and just it's sort of I don't know it's trying to I had a little note about the film sets up grandiose moments of spectacle and then swats them away or cuts away from them or choose or has a sarcasm it's very um deadpool has a lot to answer for but I feel that a lot about spider uh, superman movies or superhero movies up after them the glitching thing um, I was going to talk about... Well, I was going to make you talk about, Chris. So, Cheers. So get ready. Um, I think it's time for my impossible question. Um, it's it's interesting because this so much of the visual... Um, I don't know, palette or iconography of this movie seems to be drawing from comic books and comic book lore and and it, the sort of the, the sense of this being drawn. Yeah. Um, and yet the glitch and the figure of the glitch and the moment the movement of the glitch is this recurring motif throughout the film. So you've got the opening titles, you've got the Peter B. Parker who keeps glitching throughout, and that to me is a very sort of um, computer gra- a noticeably computer graphic. Um, yeah. So I just wondered if there's if if there's um, any work that's done on glitching in an... Uh, yeah, there we are. See, he's... he's uh, listeners, he is... And please, he's I hope you're going to mention Wreck-It Ralph. If you can I'm going to mention Pixlexia, yes. Um, <laughs> because I think it's an interesting way of it announcing very subtly its, its computerness, even though a lot of it is visual and drawn. And there's a lot of reworking of computer-animated grammar in this movie. Yes. Well, thank you for... So enough things there. Thanks for that. Um, Well, yeah, so I think first of all, it goes back to uh, the the point that Simran made about the collision between styles, first and foremost. Um, And so the film is combining a cell animated aesthetic with digital technology and a lot of the rhetoric around the movie is about how it was doing things in new ways and trying to make um, what has been up until this point a relatively uh, industry defined self similarity when it comes to computer animated films. That computer animated films, because they're using pretty much the same software there's a certain in, uh, kind of incandescence to the, the or candescence, whichever one of those it is, lighting, um, where the, the objects or the characters seem to glow. So the Render Man software um, has dictated to some extent a sort of regular uni- visual uniformity in terms of the Pixar movies, the DreamWorks movies, the Blue Sky movies, other studios are available, etc. Um, this film is striking because it, it sort of creates 
3D computer graphics in a slightly different way, um, and it sort of combines them with a cell animated look. So I've got a note about kind of cell animation. This, this seems to be the first instance of sort of convincing cell animated photorealism, something that you think of as a quality of the digital photorealism, but making it kind of cell animated in some way. Um, so this idea of the glitch, the g- glitch being this sort of corrupt the corruptibility of the digital. Um, that somehow the rendering isn't of itself a bit loose and a bit imprecise. Um, they play with it a little bit in terms of characterization, as you said, with Wreck-It Ralph. So the character of Vanellope von Schweetz is, a, is effectively a glitch. Um, but you're right, it's very much a quality of the digital. So to, so to bring that into alignment with something that is not quite 3D computer graphics as we would understand, as Pixar would understand the, the, the idea, but to bring it into alignment with something that is halfway between cell shading, computer animation that's designed to look like um, cell animation, with a new kind of three-dimensional look is is sort of quite interesting and and that matching between comic book panels i think you said like the paneling of the film um the split screen effect and then to have characters glitch is sort of this really interesting visual a different way of playing with the visual um compossibility between 2d and 3d styles i've not seen anything goes back to your point you said about not seeing anything quite like it well, so one of the, the many directors on this film is a, is a guy called Bob Pescicetti, I think is how you pronounce his name. Thank you for saying that, because I was struggling. I was, didn't, didn't know I was going to say that. that. That was a guess, and I should have said it more authoritatively. Yeah. We'll but, cut, um, say it again, and we'll cut it in. <laughs> but um, an interview uh, with him, he talks about how the animation is done on twos. And I'll, I'll just read the quote, because he explains it um, in a way that's like <laughs> more clear than I could. And maybe you can unpack that, because... I don't really or just leave it to him. But or go leave on. it to him. Yeah. So he says, in standard film, you shoot 24 frames per second, but in old traditional hand-drawn animation, you would draw 12 drawings per second. Uh, and then he says, every other frame was repeated to give a certain crispness to the movement. If you wanted something to feel smoother, you'd put it on ones. The existing computer animation process reads everything on ones. So all the simulations, from hair to cloth to you name it, all these algorithms require an image on every single frame. Yeah. What seems like it would be incredibly simple, you know, let's just drop every other frame out and animate this one on twos, blows up the whole pipeline. And so at base level, we animated the whole movie on twos, which makes it feel crisper and almost crunchy and really sharp and that was an attempt to get to a place that felt like comic book panels where you really have impact with an image and it burns into your psyche you're like wow that's the most powerful version of that image that i could get yeah no that's that's interesting because of the way that i felt that the film momentarily paused within its frame like the, the, there's moments where the action you think with animation and the, like the illusion of movement um uh, the way in which frames are done to re- reduce the amount of drawing that needs to be done you can reuse images for multiple frames um so as you said rather than having 24 images a second you can halve that uh, you could even reduce it even further from 12 to something like eight um and then repeat the images to hold poses for for a bit um what i liked about this movie is that it builds that into the narrative so there are moments where the visuals stop and it's almost as if they're performing the role of comic book frames um which i which i quite like the the for a film that seems to be a lot about movement and perspective and um, different vantage points from within the world it yeah, plays very kinetic isn't it yeah but it but it then it's not afraid to to stop and momentarily sort of stop and and uh, and be static and hold poses and it's almost as if a photograph is being taken there are flashes and then the action moves on again um so yeah i mean in terms of the the one second of animation twos and threes um it, it basically yeah, as you said relate or as, as persichetti says um it relates i think that as you said the kind of kineticism of 
of the film that continue it continually feels like it's it's movement. There's there's so much going on in the frame. I just like that he described it as crunchy mm. um, because I think that's a very evocative way to. Um, yeah, talk about how the animation looks. It is very crisp and very kind of sharp-edged, and um, yeah, it feels very crispy. You know? I'm going to write. Cr- I'd love to. I, I know exactly the kind of crunchiness of it. I don't know what. I can't put it. Can't kind of quite grasp, but it feels very. Maybe because paper could be crunchy, so it's like yeah. the two-dimensionality of it, perhaps. Yeah, I guess there's this sort of paradox in if this is trying to emulate a comic book. Um, there's that paradox in comic book, which comic book is is, is inherently. Um, uh, motionless and yet it's all about motion on the page so you're constantly looking at still images and yet you're constantly imagining motion between the images yeah so and, and obviously this is this is actually what is happening in animation um, yeah because you go no it isn't no no, yeah, yeah. no but there's something yeah. so there's interesting something interesting about imagining the gaps yeah and putting the gaps back in as a way of um well i mean a lot of writers on comic books have tried to theorize what that gutter so the space the gap between the panels in comic books what the gutter actually means because you're you're designed or you're you're conditioned or invited perhaps to read them read the panels consecutively and in some cases to imagine no time gap between the two panels but in some cases it's a totally different space and time and so the gutter is this really interesting liminal gulf between two drawn images which is 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 the in-betweening of 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 animation but um yeah the kind of comic book aesthetic of the of the of the film and the the design of it and the flattenness i think yeah the kind of crunchy crispiness i think the paper it has a sort of materiality which for something which but then at the same time it is glitchy so it's both crunching and glitchy it is both of digital but seems to have a sort of crunchy materiality yeah it's almost the sort of this the age of the you know of um i'm always interested in like iphones where like you know you have to uh, the best way of designing something on an iphone is seemingly to sort of have it so that a visual crunches the paper up and puts it in a waste paper bin that that exists yeah. you know it's kind of this idea that new technology requires an invocation of quite old technology to sort of make us feel more at home with it right and this film is almost like an equivalent of that yeah it's it's the it's the instagram retro filter um well, well sort of but it's also not nostalgic no sure you know um i i don't think it's it's necessarily sort of reaching for um too much familiarity i think it, it looks quite new um like i said I, I really don't think i've seen anything like it and i guess the fact that it was so innovative is, is why it's done so well i mean mm. like it did amazing at the box office it won the oscar for best animated feature um, I think it won like BAFTAs, Golden Globes, etc. Yeah. Which obviously, you know, are a hallmark of a good film, right? Yep. <laughs> Sense the tone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but to, to, to even have that um, sort of critical consensus, one of it to, to nominate these things, does speak of of something and the sort of zeitgeist effort when it's a, essentially a you know superhero. I mean, it's a superhero cartoon. That's another innovative feature of this, right? Is what, to try what do you think about the fact that it's a sort of children's film, but it's two hours long? Well, it's not a children's film, but it it could be sort of for a multiplicity of different age groups, and and yet it's quite long for an animated film. What? Uh, so it's a children's film because of its rating or because of its animation? Which is or interesting its comment. Yeah. Uh, and, well, not really those things, but I mean, I I think it's I I would consider it a family friendly film. The protagonist is uh-huh. a um, like young and easy yeah. for kids to kind of like interpolate themselves into. Um, the the sort of themes of it are quite, like I said, family friendly with a few sort of jokes for the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is going, it's aiming at comic book fans and people who already have an investment in Spider-Man. But I also think that the sort of 
visual dynamism of it is probably like quite exciting and stimulating for a younger audience mm. it felt to me like it could work at multiple levels but um yeah re-watching it today i'd forgotten that it, it wasn't 90 minutes it was two hours yeah um, I mean, the, the length one is interesting. I mean, a lot of compu- contemporary computer animated films are, as you say, about 90 minutes. There's a couple that are pushing it. Um, mo- most notably, The Incredibles. For a time, The Incredibles, the first Incredibles was the longest computer animated film, um, which maybe fits into this idea that that film is, you know, it's family friendly and it's about a family, but it's also an action movie where Elastigirl explains at various moments that there is jeopardy in this world. And I feel like, in the, certainly in, in Spider Verse, um, there is jeopardy, characters perish. Um, that's part of the way that the film gets its emotional punch to go with its visual crunch. Uh, like it, it weighs in with, with um, sort of an emotional, his relationship with his uh, uncle, his relationship with his father that plays out not through panels, but plays out through other side of a door to make it look like um, comic book panels. Um, but I mean, the, the length things are funny one because I'd, I suppose there's an in, in interesting point about epicness and bums on seats and being able to w- sit there for two hours. Um, but maybe the registers that you're talking about play out through the different characters because you do deliberately have characters of different ages um, and, and, and the different Spider versions or Spider-Men versions and, and Gwen Stacy and Spider-Gwen and all these sorts of things. They're different characters. They're different types. They're different. Um, and it's that classic thing where family is not necessarily a nuclear family. It's the people that you collect up along the way. Um, which is true of these movies, that you, you have fragmented family familial structures. Not in this case. Miles does have a complete family, if you like. Um, but there's certainly fragmentation within that that allows him to bring together a family out of these different multiverses. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about length, I guess, is, the, is it's an action movie as well. It's an animated superhero action movie. And there are action set pieces that would be... Um, at home in a lot of um, you know contemporary MCU m- movies or um, anything like that, um, and I think um, it, it's um, uh, there's a scholar Eve Benhamu who writes about sort of the blurriness of uh, genre categories and how why we consider why an animated superhero movie needs to be an animated superhero rather than an animated superhero movie yeah um, so there's also that issue of length like a, a, an action movie of this length need of this caliber i should say needs to be this length it needs to feel that weightiness you need to get your bang for your buck so back to what you're saying about multiple audiences i think there's in its length and in its desire to have all these action set pieces is also speaking to the people who you know the, the mcu fans the the, the previous spider-man film fans all this kind of stuff so it's all playing out this sort of multiple inclusive multiple registers and it's both a commercial thing but it's also in the film and it's thematically important to the movie and all that kind of stuff and that's perhaps the skill it trips it trips the light fantastic on both of them I can't believe, can't believe you got that I watched Mary Poppins uh, too the other day so sorry about that yeah it's now that time of the show where we pause for a second and talk about blog posts what are blog posts? blog posts are available on fantasy-animation.org every week a special guest contributor writes one, and it can be about all kinds of things um, relating to the worlds of fantasy and animation. If you're an academic, even a screenwriter, maybe a practitioner or an artist, a curator, member of a fan organisation, animation director, or anyone with a vested interest in where fantasy and animation might meet, we would love to hear from you. If you're trying to promote some of your work and would like to write a creative reflection on how you were inspired to produce your work of animation, we're here to help. If you're an early career researcher who's looked like to, who would like to get some publication experience and some editorial advice on their work, we're here to help. Blog posts can take many forms. They can be a short editorial or opinion piece, 
maybe a sequence analysis where is your chance to get obsessive, pick a short clip from any example of fantasy and animation and analyse the relationship between the two media, mediums and genres. If you've read a book, seen a television programme or film, we'd love to hear from you. We want reviews. If you've been to an event, a conference or even a film festival, do get in touch. Fantasy-animation.org But for now... Let's get back to the show. Um, so we started to talk a little bit about the, or you did start to and talked a little bit about the, the plot, and, and um, it seems to try visually to revise and play with origins and stories and, and narratives. Um, but it also seems to bear the weight, and perhaps you can speak a little bit about this, the sort of contemporary Hollywood um, shift towards, I guess, kind of more complex narratives or kind of puzzle movies or films that split and fork into different i feel like um split narratives and, and alternative worlds and things like this are uh, are more of a contemporary thing i guess i mean i'm thinking you know these films like eternal sunshine or even going back to the late 90s um run load of run like what would happen if and there's lots of writing on fictional worlds by somebody called ruth ronan that talks about um possible worlds being rooted in a discourse of uh, like ramification what would happen if this were to happen and that allowed the narrative to split split off um I mean, it's the film, its reference point is contemporary animation, its reference point is superhero movies. But in terms of narrative, it's quite complex. Like, I feel like it's, it's very much of a contemporary period where d- different kinds of demands are being placed for, on spectators for complex narratives. Is that, would that be a, a, a kind of a fair assessment of the movie? It feels like complex narratives, forking path films are, are something that uh, are sort of a relatively recent trend. I mean, I, I, I've honestly, I've never really thought about it in that sense. And I'm not sure whether um, sort of the splitting of the universe and the, the multiplicity of characters, which kind of allows for more different perspectives to be represented, which potentially allows more different parts of the audience to see themselves. I, I mean, maybe that's one way of looking at it. I think that's maybe quite a cynical way of understanding why the film is doing that to try and meet its consumer needs because people you know can't connect with a film unless they directly see themselves in it i think that's actually a huge problem in in criticism um and contemporary criticism today where i feel like there's such a pressure for a film to conform to a certain identity politics and for us to feel like we can only connect if we can see ourselves i don't i don't know if for me that's necessarily what the film is doing although maybe it is maybe i'm giving it too much a a benefit of the doubt um i think maybe it's actually more simple than we than we think it is it's a story of a boy who needs to become a man um you know needs to learn how to get back up which is a sort of spider-man mythology you know you get knocked down you always get back up um it's about kind of not putting himself first um, putting others first, trying to save the universe and be a good person. I think these are like actually quite sort of straightforward, quite classic ideas, actually. Um, but I don't know, maybe. Um... Yeah, no, that, I'd not really thought of it. As in, my, my go to was our case. Fa- I was thinking, fant- I was thinking with your fantasy. You let me borrow your fantasy hat for a moment. Sure. I was thinking split worlds and. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, th- I think the multiple characters and the multiple worlds um, is interesting in the sense that. Um, I actually there there is there um, there are a lot of movies in the last sort of ten years that have done the split universe plot device thing, and it's usually an answer to issues of remakes or franchises or things like that. Um, I mean, time travel is a well-worn science fiction trope, going you know back to its its origins, but um, in recent years it's been a, a good way of 
um, speaking across different shared universes. So if you think about something like the Star Trek remake a few years ago, one of the ways they tried to appease fan audiences um, of the original and also introduce new audiences was to introduce the idea of this being a new parallel universe that could exist and cohabit with the previous one. Um, I I guess maybe um, the way... I I think you're right, and I think maybe the way I would... um, talk about it is not in terms of a sort of split narrative but more in terms of a crossover film Mm. right so it reminds me more of of that crossover x-men movie where they had the old generation (laughs) of characters that i grew up watching with the sort of first class um set of characters or um obviously the the sort of biggest example is the last couple of Avengers movies, or all of the Avengers movies, but particularly <laughs> like the last two, where you kind of flash back to uh, the other films that are within the cinematic universe, but actually not necessarily within that specific series to, like you say, mm. um, to do the kind of uh, make those connections more explicit and kind of. I guess reward people for having that contextual knowledge and and sort of being able to, um, yeah, feel good about the fact that they've watched all of them and, and feel good maybe is isn't the wrong way of putting it, but feel like the the investment that they've made has had a return. Yeah, absolutely. But I think what's interesting about this one is it's 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 sort of forward looking rather than backward looking. Even though well, it's not about time travel, but even though a lot of these films are about time travel, you know, the, when when they do it with Terminator and they look back over previous Terminator movies, it's very much a sort of act of closing off, almost like we're going back to the franchise and we're we're cl- tying up loose ends through this sort of. Um, time travel multi-universe narrative I mean the, the new Avengers movie which I enjoyed a lot actually but but does a similar sort of tying up job with this with this it seems to be like it's 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 starting the franchise with that right if this is going to be a franchise which it seems there are at least going to be new movies in the slate yeah set in this multiverse and the the terms are there is no there is there isn't a primary world there isn't even a secondary world there are just worlds and there are possibilities and I like that like it, there's a way of watching yeah, like this movie too. that's very different that's like it's just about it's 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 able to tell a story without shutting off alternative stories and that's an interesting clever device yeah i think the the kind of doing away with the the hierarchies of of these different worlds is actually quite radical really well, isn't it the in the case of because you mentioned X Men? Um, obviously, we're we're speaking at a time where one of the new X Men movies has come out, and potentially the last X Men movie of that of that ilk. Um, but t- as you say, Alex, time travel is often uh, a solution or a way in which a problem is solved to rectify certain narrative trajectories. Um, X Men, Avengers, whatever it might be. Um, in this instance, or certainly in the case of Spider Verse, that time travel doesn't. It's not really time travel as much as it is just sort of movement across worlds and and ultimately time travel doesn't solve anything it brings characters together that they solve their problems by speaking and discussing and then they go back to their respective worlds and you get scenes where the film takes us to the uh, the resolution it takes us to these various worlds so time travel doesn't seem to solve any problems as you say it seems to start possibilities possibilities yeah it's a moment of disruption for sure. Well, that's thank you for saying that because that's the other thing. I, we we go on about this podcast various theories of fantasy and ways of categorizing what fantasy does to a text. So there are some texts that fantasy is disruptive; the world is as it is, and then the fantasy disrupts the world. So Mary Poppins, and there are others where fantasy is sort of immersive. So the world itself is a disruption from reality, and you enter into. Uh, we 
just recently did one Lord of the Rings that would perhaps fit that category. This is this sort of just destroys those labels because there is no single world. So there is no. I think it would be. I don't think. It, I don't think it does justice to the logic of this movie to say that there's the world that is reality where Miles lives. And then that is disrupted by all these Spider-Mans and then resolved. That's not what happens. What happens is um, there is no single world at the end. So there is no disruption. There is no what reality should be. There is just lots of different realities. Um, and that's cool. That's kind of radical if you want to read it that way. So does that mean that it kind of democratizes? Because I asked you in the film whether the world that Mars inhabits, what we would... As you, and, and it actually goes point to, to the point Simon made about like the narrative of the movie. It starts off quite uh, classical in the, in the way that it sets up Spider-Man is this boy who then gets bitten and turns into a superhero. That is the ostensibly the primary world. And there comes a point where we all, or certainly the first half an hour, 40, we think that this is the primary world, that this is the, the world of uh, laws and logic and and everything else. It's the primary world out of which others will emerge but actually as you say it's one of many possible worlds that run parallel to each other so there's something quite yeah kind of quite interesting about it's not trying to posit it posits different versions of the world through different versions of characters that are themselves perhaps representative of different traditions um but what is interesting is that it seems that the same characters exist across different worlds but in some worlds they die in some worlds they have stronger relationships and and so there's something very if if ronin's work on on fictional world creation suggests that possible worlds are rooted in this discourse of ramification the other category is parallelism so worlds fictional worlds are like our worlds uh possible worlds are like our worlds but with the discourse of what if or the hypothetical the conditional tense what would happen it seems like all of these worlds are muddy those categories as well because they are equally as parallel equally as possible all equally as fictional uh and you can talk about all of this movie in terms of fictional worlds and the, the con- connections between those worlds. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. It does a disservice to the movie to just sort of say that it involves split narratives and forking paths and multiple ver- um, versions. It, do- it does something a little bit more um, sophisticated with those things, with those tropes. Well, I guess it, de- it, de- it slowly deconstructs the idea of there being a single or a, or a primary version. So it's no longer a case that there is a world of reality and a world of fantasy the alternative world it's a case that they're all alternative worlds by the end of it and i guess that like deals with the problem of miles morales if you want to think of him as a problem if somebody doesn't know anything about the comic books or doesn't really know anything about that character or dare i say it feels some kind of discomfort or threat about the fact that there's a black Mm spider-man um this completely contextualizes the need for his existence and and why we should kind of follow this character not only because he's charismatic and fun to spend time with but also because this doesn't kind of interrupt or undo any existing knowledge of the other spider-mans that exist across the multiverse yeah and that's that's a trick franchises used before but this time it's doing something much more interesting with it i think absolutely i agree um because what it does it's sort of i mean there's a there's a psychoanalytic uh theorist who talks about science fiction that talks about called Constance um, Penley who talks about uh, speculative fiction being essentially rooted in childhood imaginative capacity so it's it's our way of imagining worlds um, and and what this is asking us to imagine is a world where um, where whatever character the, the character of Spider-Man has no fixed identity other than the one you want to fix to it um, and yes this happens to have been a story about this Spider-Man but it's it could have been about any Spider-Man and and 
and identity itself is the thing that we should speculate on. It's not, and, and that's the fun. It's the flipping between worlds. It's not the being in one world. So reality isn't static. It's changeable, um, which we could talk about in terms of, you know, I mean, I, th- I think this film is very conscious of what it's doing in terms of identity politics and what it's offering as a, as a, a new vision of, of superheroism that isn't white male classic, um, which I think is really, really cool about it. I mean, I was going to say that it obviously plays with this, and that isn't the last line, one of the last lines, it has about five, six last lines. That I, I, I thought I was going to end on that zinger of a line, and then there's another one, uh, about anyone can wear the mask, and obviously it's playing with uh, uh, traditions of the superhero movie rooted in exceptionalism, and upturning them by talking about kind of uh, egalitarianism and, 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 and that everyone is positive. And there's that moment where he goes to buy uh, a pa- what look like pajamas, but they're not pajamas, but like um, a suit, his own version of the, the Spider-Man suit, and puts it on and goes to uh, effectively a public mourning or a public memorial for one of the Spider-Men who has, who has died. Um, and there's goodness knows how many people dressed up as, as Spider-Man. And so, but but then I was thinking, it does that kind of accept that does that. Does that discourse of egalitarianism, or that anyone can be Spider-Man, it can, does that does that come into conflict with its identity politics? As or, I guess if we're thinking of Miles Morales as a um, as an Afro-Latino teenager within many possible versions of Spider-Man, is there is there a kind of conflict between the film's progressive nature and being able to show a, a superhero that isn't white um, with I don't know a, a sort of Making the comment that we could all be spiders, yeah. so he's not special. Yeah, I don't, so. I don't really know. I, I'm just kind of think. I just wonder whether there is a, there is a tension here. If, if Miles Morales can be a, a superhero, but so can a pig, and so can a you know oh. like a, a black and white noir hero, and and, and so can a. And so I, I, I don't know the answer to this, but there is something. Yeah. Does the film's progressive identity politics come into conflict with its message of egalitarianism? I don't. I for me, I don't think so because. Even if we're going to accept the idea that all of the multiverses are equal, the one that we begin and end with yeah. is Miles Morales. He's our point of entry. He's the point of identification. Um, he He's the main character. He might not be even the most important superhero, but he is the audience. And so I think there's something yeah. radical about that point of entry being a young black kid. Um, well, that's interesting. So... so- yeah, I'd not th- so he's sort of like the surrogate audience who is learning the world. For f- or is he a surrogate fan who doesn't know the world of Spider-Man and the tradition? And the like? is that when you say his entry point? Is he a uh, is he a kind of surrogate audience for people who aren't familiar with the traditions and the the rules and the the character? Well, I mean, I, I don't think you necessarily have to have a comprehensive understanding of mythology of the character although you probably enjoy it more if you do have some context for it but you know there's a a sort of training montage where they're all punching him and all say it's you know all the different versions of of spider-man um they're all kind of explaining their specific powers in their own universes and you know what they can do and can he do this and can he do that and um, you know, can he hack a computer or <laughs> can he uh, float through the air based on the smell of a pie, I think is what... Um, yes, what yes, yes, yes. Um, and uh, he is sort of lying there on the floor, kind of not quite able to articulate stuff. And I think maybe that for me is, is the audience. You're learning the possibilities of what Spider-Man can do um, and who he can be. And, and as he kind of steps into his power... Um, we we get to kind of enjoy that in a more visceral way. Um, 
But I, I, don't I love that stepping into his power. Like that's that's I, yeah. Because the film spends a lot of time with him. I think you're absolutely right. I feel like the film doesn't spend a lot of time learning about the villain's plans, and there's not a lot of scenes. It just seems to, he's in a lot of the scenes, Miles yeah. Morales, and I. And so that's that's that seems to be the point that he's the navigation. He's the kind of signpost. Um, but yeah, stepping into his power. I love that. I love what you were saying earlier, man, about sort of um, a laziness in like. Uh, you can only identify with characters who are exactly like you on screen. Therefore, unless characters are exactly like you, you're closing off opportunities for audience members to identify. Is that kind of what the film's playing with? Because what we get here is a young black kid who can't imagine himself being Peter Parker, being Spider-Man. And throughout the course of the movie, he, that's what he learns. He learns to identify with that. He learns to sort of um, take that leap of faith, as I think they put it in the movie, and, 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 and identify as a figure who could be Spider-Man. Um, I don't yeah. know, I'm just riffing on what you were saying, yeah. but I think there's something in that. I, I, I wonder if it's a kind of um, dramatisation of a, of a sort of imposter syndrome almost. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody who has a capability but just um, doesn't feel capable. Um, and then he, he, through these various challenges and tests, um, does have the kind of ability to save the universe, save the multiverse. Well, well I, I guess that... that that is that's interesting because I was trying to think of the ways in which the film sets obviously it sets him up as the characters you say it's the world that we inhabit we begin and end in that particular world not not a primary world but it's the world that the film chooses to locate us in um, and obviously I think his relationship with you get an insight into his personal life so you get an uh, um, sort of insight into his uh, parental figures his relationship with his um, uncle which I always I still don't know what his uncle's kind of doing i don't quite understand what his job is in relate like as a as a villain and that that has always troubled me that he's that he has a personal relationship with miles morales of course but then he's hired by the kingpin or works with the kingpin and i don't quite understand how he got that job or where he's uh yeah where his loyalties lie and it, the film does play with that little bit and, and there are lots of references in the film to kind of ambiguity and moral ambiguity and and um i think the nicholas cage voiced uh Peter Parker Noir guy, Spider-Man Noir says something like, this is one hell of an origin story. So it is, going back to your point about children, like it's quite, I think it's complex, not necessarily its narrative, which, which as you say, is relatively classical or simplistic, but what it actually is, it's very, um, a lot of its, its, its characters might be flattened, but the emotions and the relationship between them are very three-dimensional. Yeah, and I, I remember um, Lord and Miller said, said in an interview, I think actually um, it might have been Lord in, in a kind of TED talk, but um, he talks about Amy Pascal, who is, uh, you know, one of the, the higher-ups at Sony, very famous, important, and difficult, I have heard, woman. Um, I only know this from the leaked emails and when, you know, she was very rude to David Fincher. But obviously, you know, gets shit done. I'm digressing. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Amy Pascal um, had said to him that it's not about characters, it's about relationships. Yeah. And um, that seems to have been a, a kind of guiding principle for the film, I also think about um, the fiction writer Sally Rooney, who um, you know wrote a, a big kind of blockbuster hit this year, last year, Normal People, and she said that she didn't begin by writing two characters; she began by writing a dynamic. Um, and I think that's a kind of interesting way to think about this film and all the characters and how they connect to each other. But what I will say about the purpose of the uncle is that I think maybe it's it's just more kind of basic than we um, are giving it credit for. Um, and it might be just the fact that as the film begins, 
Miles is quite sort of a typical teenager, feels quite smothered by his parents. His dad's a cop. He gets dropped off at school by his dad. Oh, and the dad, and Perhaps the best scene of the movie with, with the siren. And <laughs> yeah, the, exactly. He's got the siren <laughs> and the dad is shouting down the megaphone, say that I love you, dad, <laughs> say I love you. And he just has to say it back and is humiliated. Um, and he sees the uncle as a kind of cool um you know sort of more uh relatable figure but actually that's the person who betrays him and maybe it's a it's a more kind of maybe conservative is the wrong the wrong word but a, a more kind of simple message about how actually oftentimes our parents have our best interests at heart mm. and maybe we should listen to them rather than kind of getting seduced by these alternate models of parenthood. Well, except he, he sort of does that, except he, he becomes Spider-Man, who is a villain, that he's, who's a figure that the father hates at the beginning. And even at the end, he's sort of reconciled with the fact that he exists, but never goes so far as to say, oh, I completely get it now, Spider-Man's great. Like, he doesn't, you know, I don't agree with your methods, but I guess we'll agree to disagree. So it's almost like there's a th- triad, there's, there's a triad father figure going on, then there's the father, the uncle, and then there's the Peter B. Parker mm-hmm. figure. And all three of them are sort of surrogate um, father figures, and he somehow finds a sort of out of all of those. He, well, that, I think that's that point about nuclear family that that a lot of these movies, a lot of computer animated feature films, don't really trade in fixed and complete nuclear families. They play with um, surrogacy. Uh, they play with um, your friends or your family. All these sorts of things. But it's interesting that he find he kind of finds a composite father figure out of three different characters. But I, I was going to go back to the point you made, Simran, about. Um, uh, relationships that you are oh, dynamics that characters are written it, and it very much feels like this that the film is is rooted in uh, not kind of stock characters ch- kind of chess pieces that get moved around it's more interested about the movements that they make I wonder whether the comic book aesthetic and the use of panels is quite nice in that respect because the paneling of the film sometimes aligns two characters together and creates and, and allows that allows those dynamics to play out visually and without dialogue. So the moment that um, we talked about where he's he's Miles's father goes to visit him to tell him that his uncle has died and he's uh, unbeknownst to his father he's tied to a chair and can't speak and so it's all played out one way. The illusion is that these are two comic book panels, but they actually are just a conversation that's happening either side of the door. And I and I like the idea that that a film that is rooted in nuances of emotion that come from dynamics between characters rather than anything else um, that's allowed to play out through the form of the film. That it's not a film where if you have two panels or split screens together, that now doesn't jump out as a, a strange thing for the film to do. It allows for. You kind of, or you kind of accept this alignment of weird spaces and different characters at different moments. And, and obviously the whole premise of the, the film is that the, the villain wants to, to meet with his, or he ends up aligning spatio-temporally with his daughter, Vanessa, is that right? Isn't Vanessa. it so satisfying when film aesthetics are useful? Oh, I love it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and, really, and so the, and back to what I was saying about time travel, he's the only one that wants to travel through time. Yeah. He's the only one that wants to fix things and make things back the way they were through the the time travel device everyone else is happy living living in their own multiverse yeah Mm. or at least they're they're happy with living in the conditions of their world and although it's it's only through visiting miles as well that they then are allowed to go back to their own world and you're either well some characters go back with a greater sense of themselves and others just go back with the rubik's cube well, you know, if you're voiced by Nicolas Cage, your you opportunity you for character growth is always uh, going to be uh, questioned. Um, but, um, but, it, uh, but, um, but, yes. Yeah, so so they, they, we actually we haven't talked about the comic characters. Um, but there's not. Is a it the humour? The comic. 
Oh, oh the very funny. Good, very good. No, well, I meant I meant funny, but like so. There's the the noir. Uh, Spider Man, the was it uh, Spider Ham, the Porky um, Pig thing, yeah, and we've we've made a rule in this podcast to say things aren't about animation anymore. But I can't help feel the scene where we get one character is introduced who's basically a Looney Tunes character, and another character introduces basically a sort of parody of manga and anime. There's something about animation going on in that scene, and there's not only a collision of worlds; it's a collision of animation styles and, and animation legacies. Um, I don't think I have much to say on the comic characters, other than the, the humorous characters, other than they are funny and I enjoyed them. Well, um, I mean, Nicolas Cage's uh, Spider-Man is a sort of black and white, very 2D, noir Spider-Man. And he's introduced by saying, I like to drink egg creams and fight Nazis a lot. Um, which, you know, I think is, is, is just funny. It's yeah. just really funny. Uh, well, the, f- and the, film is, uh, the film is funny. And it's, it's, um, but, it, but it knows when to be funny. And, and I know that there are bits of the film that were cut out, particularly around Peter Porker, so the Spider-Ham character. Um, but the film knows where to allocate its humour, and there are, and you know, and there's a, a bit about. Uh, I think it's Peter Porker. He says, uh, or he gets asked, uh, "What are you? Some kind of silly cartoon?" And he says, "If you've got a problem with silly cartoons," and then there's a violent sort of fracas, and then Peter Porker says, "Did that feel like a cartoon?" And so, <laughs> of course, it's, it's reflect. You know, as you say, we spend a lot of this time on this podcast talking about uh, reflexivity and self-referentiality and how the film is about animation. And I said to you in the screening, the minute he started being a graffiti artist, I was like, oh, it's about animation. It's about dr-. And he's first introduced Miles sitting at a, a kind of desk and drawing. And so, yes, okay, the film is referential, but it's... It's a lot more than that. It's referential about so many things, and it's literate about so many things, and animation is just one of them. In my um, in my original review of the film for The Observer, my editor asked me to kind of change uh, my opening paragraph because she like I couldn't succinctly, within my very, very short word count, explain my joke, which was that uh, basically the film that it features the first black Spider-Man is based on a meme that was made popular by black Twitter, which is the two images of Spider-Man pointing at each other um, being identical. And actually that, I, I thought of that when I was watching the film, I immediately thought of that meme. And then um, they show the scene right at the end of the film in the sort of post-credit sequence, which I thought was very funny. Oh yes, I know the meme. So it's one about, the, the version of that meme I know is the one where the two Spider-Men are looking at each other and one is, I'm nauseous because I'm hungry. And the other one is, I'm hungry because I'm nauseous or something like that. Like Exactly, it, you can swap out the text. But, yeah. um, and true meme style. But no, there's something about that kind of collision. And it goes back to the, uh, the pleasure of the movie, trying to think, I, I guess... I'm interested in where the pleasure of the movie lies. For me, or you could say it, rel- it, it lies in the collision between different styles, um, but it's also really funny. Um, it's uh, funny when it needs to be. It's realist when it needs to be. It has great dynamics between characters. The human stuff is very funny. The, the stuff about his crush on, um, on Gwen Stacy mm-hmm. is hilarious. Um, there's a whole kind of sequence where his uncle, who was... Uh, I think played by Mahershala Ali, yeah. right? Um, the ultimate kind of suave, cool guy teaches him uh, how to chat up a girl and he references a, a move he likes to call the shoulder touch yeah. where you put your hand on a girl's <laughs> shoulder and say, hey. Um, but then he doesn't anticipate his hand getting stuck to her hair and then her having to shave it off. No, but it eventually works on Kimpy. Uh, so it all, all works out in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm looking through my... Yeah, looking for final, final Yeah, notes. no, I've, uh, the thing, I, one thing I'd like to... The way we talked about, cause, and it goes back to your point, Simon, about kind of kineticism. So the film is interested in um, different perspectives and seeing the world from different angles and really interesting shots from above and below and looking down and looking up. And, and there's that bit where he's sort of 
descending within the world of the film. Miles Morales is descending and falling, but the, the shot is inverted. So he's both falling and rising simultaneously. So you get this weird kind of, yeah, okay, so he's falling, but hey, this is his moment of he's now facing his fear and embracing everything and taking that leap and so forth. Um, and a lot of the film... And I think the digital can do this very well in terms of point of view. Point of view is something that you can't make into uh, an adjective. Uh, and so a lot of writers on film have tried to figure out how, and this is where you get to kind of terms like focalizing, where the action is focalized through different viewpoints and vantage points and so forth. Um, and so it got uh, the, f- the, the space or the world of the film is very sort of anecdotal because it's personalized through the different viewpoints within it. So you get Spider-Man's viewpoint and then you get, uh, Spider Ham's viewpoint, and then your son, and the bit where that—that's kind of set piece where they're swinging through the trees. They've just um, stolen the computer and the monitor, but they don't need the monitor, and they're swing. And it's actually the first moment I think where Miles learns to swing between the trees. That sequence is just incredible, like absolutely incredible. And you have uh, just after the reveal of Doc Ock, I think it is, and she's kind of running through the the. Um, uh, um, forest uh, and it's just before you get introduced to spider gwen so that that sequence for me is like the fullest realization of of sort of how you how you create a, a dynamic world isn't it helpful when film aesthetics are useful like that's exactly the point um that the, that that sequence for me was my kind of that's where my pleasure of the film lies in that particular sequence the use of perspective which is obviously something that spider-man movies can do and i don't think it's any coincidence that the first wave of raimi films 2001 to 2003 is is a time where cgi is kind of 10, 15 years old. Like we're now seeing what it can do. And the but the first wave of superhero movies in the early 2000s before Catwoman ruined them all. And then they returned again with Iron Man. You know, like that first wave, it makes perfect sense that that CGI is being experimented in in these kind of Spider-Man movies. Um, but no, I thought, yeah, the colors were great. The point of view shots were great. The subjectivity was great. Um, it was funny. So yeah, I, would, I, I loved it. Any final... Uh Notes we haven't got to, Simran, on your... Uh, oh, I also like the music. Rimming uh, <laughs> bit of paper there. Um, no, no, just that I, I really, really like this film. And um, yeah, it was it was great to be able to watch it again. And I guess um, it was interesting to watch it twice, once in 3D when I saw it in the cinema and, and then in 2D when I watched it today. And I think um, it really benefits from the 3D, actually. Oh, yeah. um, it really pops, it, given the kind of 3D experience. But um, the storytelling is so strong that I think it works in 2D as well. Okay. I didn't see it in 3D. So is there any particular, can you remember any moments from it that stood out in 3D? Or, uh... Uh, now you're testing me. Yeah, yeah all right. No, no, no. I have to ask an impossible question each week. I, I just have one final question for Alex. Is, that, is it a fantasy film? Uh, yes, uh, because um, it fits within folkloric traditions of the twice told. It fits within comic traditions, which comics are in- intrinsically related to popular fantasy fiction since the 1930s. Um, and I think what is um, particularly fun about this one is, it, is it, 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 it uses the dynamics of fantasy to tell a story about inclusive worlds and inclusive perspectives, as you were saying, Chris. Um, I think it does through its fantasy storytelling a lot of what you're saying it does visually through its animation. So, yes, it is. Don't worry. Okay, no, great. Um, so before we before we wrap up um, and before we say thank you to Simran, uh, I just wanted to, do you have any plugs, anything? Where can people find you if they want to um, read your stuff? Are you on social media? Um, yeah, I unfortunately am addicted <laughs> to social media. Um, you can find me on Twitter as at heavier underscore things um, or you can read my reviews on the Guardian website. Just 
Google The Guardian plus Simran Hans and then you'll find me. Amazing. Um, Simran, thank you very much for, for joining us and taking us through um, a film that you love, Spider-Man um, Into the Multiverse. Um, uh, you can, now this is my trick because I don't normally do this bit of the podcast so I now get to say that you can follow us on Twitter at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N A-N-I-M Research. He's not as good. No, I did it wrong. He's not as good. Yes, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. Uh, You can find us uh, fantasy-animation.org. There's a mailing list uh, and a contact button on that. Please get in contact. Any suggestions for future episodes, feedback on previous episodes, um, all welcome, as well as finding us on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, But for now, that's another show um, for another week in another world, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.